0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And back in March 2020, which... According to my notes here, was approximately a billion years ago, I did an episode about the video social media platform TikTok. Now, in case you have somehow missed out on the TikTok craze entirely, I'll explain what that is briefly. It's an online video sharing app that lets users create videos typically stuff like lip syncing videos using an archive of sound clips. But they could also shoot very short, like, you know, 15 second long videos. That could be anything from a stunt to a joke. Uh, They can even create really sophisticated editing tricks to make it look like you're doing, you know, magic tricks and stuff. Uh, They could use reply feature to create a duet like experience where uh, you can create a video that's sort of in response to a previous video and have them play side by side and create the appearance of an interaction between the two. It's pretty cool stuff. Lots of folks have used TikTok creatively, from making political or social commentary to, you know, doing those kind of cool special effects sort of videos. I've seen, seen some really clever ones, and there's good stuff. And of course, there's plenty of bad stuff on there, too, and by bad, I don't just mean folks who haven't mastered the skills of creating videos, but also people just, you know, behaving badly, spreading misinformation or disinformation or being hateful. In other words, it's a microcosm of the internet at large. TikTok was already in the news back in March. Now it's August 2020. I, I had to look to make sure. And uh, TikTok is popping up in headlines again, and enough has happened since that March episode that I kind of needed to do another episode about this. Part of that is because the president of the United States has a bit of a vendetta against the service. Now, as I record this, he has signed an executive order to impose sanctions against TikTok. But by the time you hear this episode... I'll expect we'll understand a little more regarding how those sanctions will play out. We've got some hints right now, but it's still kind of vague. Uh, The assumption right now is that American companies will be banned from advertising on TikTok. You know, advertising is kind of where TikTok gets its revenue. And that companies like Apple and Google will remove TikTok from their app stores, respectively. Trump also stated that the sanctions will hit unless the company agrees to a deal where some U.S. company will acquire it. In other words, it will move from the hands of ownership it currently sits in to new ownership. Now, I'll get back to some of the reasons that the Trump campaign and administration may have to pursue a campaign against TikTok beyond the you know, stated reasons. They don't all have to do with trade wars and national security, in other words, but we'll get to that toward the end. Now, another reason TikTok is in the news is because Microsoft is making a move to purchase some or perhaps all of TikTok. It all depends on the reports you read and believe and whether or not it's in a talks to acquire some of it or the whole ding dang darn thing. I mean, at the time I'm recording this, Microsoft disputes that it's after the whole company. Part of it has to do with an ongoing discussion about whether or not TikTok stands as a threat to national security in the United States. Because again, the parent company for TikTok is a Chinese company called ByteDance. So when Trump is saying an American entity must buy TikTok, the current candidate to do just that happens to be Microsoft. But what I really want to focus on for much of this episode is what Microsoft and the U.S. government are kind of using as a justification to wrest ownership of TikTok away from ByteDance, at least in some parts of the world. And that's the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, or CFIUS, because whether you care about TikTok or not— this committee has played a big part in several big moves in the tech industry, or in some cases, prevented big moves from ever happening. So let's trace the history of this committee, because until recently, I don't think a lot of people had heard about it. Even now, you may not have heard about it unless you were specifically looking into news stories about all this stuff. But the committee has been active for a while and uh, has been instrumental in in some major deals, and yet tends to kind of get overlooked. By the end of this episode, I'll talk more about what's specifically going on with TikTok, as well as my own sort of complicated thoughts on the whole thing, because this is one of those situations where I really don't know what the right move is. Now, like a lot of historical stories, it can be tricky to figure out just where I should begin with this one. I mean, you can cite a specific law or action, But chances are, whatever you cite will have a precedent. And I don't want to trace this all the way back to the founding of the United States, or even further back than that, but really we need to focus on the modern industrial age. So for that reason, I'm going to talk first about the War Powers Act of World War II. In 1941, Japanese forces attacked the U.S. at Pearl Harbor. In Hawaii. Two weeks later, the U.S. government put into place the War Powers Act of 1941. This act expanded the federal government's powers and authority, giving the executive branch, uh, for those who are not familiar, that would be the branch that the president is in, uh, it gave that branch a great deal of flexibility to reshape the government to focus efforts on all things related to war. Then you had the War Powers Act of 1942. That one gave U.S. military branches the authority to seize U.S. land for the purposes of establishing and expanding bases, among other things. And it also allowed the government to fast track the research and development of atomic weapons, leading to the Manhattan Project. The precedent here was that in times of national emergency, the federal government could expand its powers beyond what would normally be acceptable in the United States. By 1950, The U.S. was in a post-World War II boom period, but that year, the Korean War started and the U.S. got involved. While the central conflict was in Korea for the U.S., this was part of an ongoing power struggle with the then-Soviet Union. The U.S. government passed a law called the Defense Production Act of 1950. This law granted powers to the U.S. president to influence domestic businesses for the purposes of national defense. The idea is that, again, in a time of crisis, the president can command industry in this country to provide what is deemed, quote, essential materials and goods, end quote, for the purposes of boosting national defense. So now, the powers of the government were again expanded, and precedent was set in which a U.S. president could issue directives to private industry. By the way, if you are so inclined, that act is available for free on the internet. You can read the whole darn thing if you like. It's more than a little dry, if I'm being honest. This brings us up to 1975. Coincidentally, the year I was born. Gerald Ford, who had served as vice president to Richard Nixon, was president at this point after Nixon had resigned due to the Watergate scandal. Ford issued an executive order, Executive Order number 11858 to be precise, titled, quote, Foreign Investment in the United States, end quote. And this executive order cited Section 721 of the Defense Production Act of 1950, So there's a lot that we have to unpack here. First, what exactly is an executive order? Well, it's an official directive from the President of the United States that commands some action of the federal government. Every president in U.S. history has signed at least one executive order. George W. Bush signed 291 of them during his two terms. That made him the president who issued the most executive orders in history. Executive Orders are legal documents and typically instruct various government powers to take specific actions. They are not always straightforward legal documents, and they are sometimes controversial, and occasionally they end up being challenged or even ignored. Okay, so what was Section 721 of the Defense Production Act of 1950 as amended? Because the act has been amended since it was first issued in 1950, so that's how we refer to it now. Well, Section 721 falls under the General Provisions under Title Seven of the Act. And the title of that section is, quote, Authority to Review Certain Mergers, Acquisitions, and Takeovers, end quote. Now, essentially, this part of the Act established the authority of the federal government to investigate any planned major changes in ownership among certain companies. Certain doesn't really get defined. But the implication is companies that are important to the welfare of the United States. So the idea here is that some companies might be vitally important to the U.S. and for national security. And so the ownership of those companies is a matter of national interest. It's also important if you want to avoid situations such as monopolies, where a single company, or really a small group of companies, dominates an industry to a point that it hurts citizens and it discourages competition. The act expressly gives the president authority to, quote, "...take such action for such time as the president considers appropriate to suspend or prohibit any covered transaction that threatens to impair the national security of the United States." end quote. Covered transaction just means that certain types of transactions like mergers and acquisitions are specifically covered by the section. Big, big time stuff. Not like this company has gone into a limited partnership with this other company for the purposes of this one and only thing. That would probably fall outside of covered transactions. So the U.S. president may halt any covered company transaction that could stand as a threat to U.S. security. Now, there's a lot more nuance to this, but there's not much point in going through it all in this podcast. It would get bogged down super fast. Ford's executive order officially established the Committee on Foreign Investment, which was first outlined in that 1950 Act, and the original act stated that the membership of this committee would include the following U.S. officials— Secretary of the Treasury, Secretary of Homeland Security, Secretary of Commerce, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, the Attorney General of the United States, the Secretary of Energy, and then there were two non-voting members of the committee, the Secretary of Labor and the Director of National Intelligence. Now, these are mostly appointed offices, meaning the president appoints those officers. Some of them require confirmation from the Senate before that can happen. But you could argue that this deck is kind of stacked in the favor of the executive branch because the president is the one who's appointing all these individuals. Ford's executive order in 1975 added two new members to this committee, and that would be the United States Trade Representative and the Director of the Office of Science and Technology Policy. Plus, both the 1950 Act and the 1975 executive order made allowances for the president to appoint any other heads of agencies or offices to the committee on a case-by-case basis, The U.S. Secretary of the Treasury acts as chairperson for this committee, and the rules by which the committee may review transactions gets fairly complex, and they're often open to interpretation. Not all transactions fall under the purview of this group, as I mentioned, and moreover, deciding which proposed transactions could impact national security isn't really cut and dried either. So in some respects, you could say that the committee defines whether or not an individual case is a potential national security matter, case by case. So it's frustrating because there's not like a clear and dry set of rules that you could look at and say, all right, well, this falls outside of that, so everything's okay. Or no, that rule covers this particular case, so we got to adjust things. It's a little more freeform than that. Back in 1975, when Ford really got the committee into action, much of the companies that were under scrutiny fell into the energy sector. The world was going through an oil crisis. Uh, More countries were industrializing, and their need for resources was on the rise. Uh, Industrialized countries got industrialized-er, which isn't a word, but by that I mean they grew more complex And their need for energy resources was growing as well. Moreover, here in the U.S., we were depending heavily on oil from foreign countries. We weren't producing enough domestically to meet all our needs. So this was truly a matter of national security, as the oil crisis taught us, is that if that supply gets cut off, then we find ourselves in trouble pretty quickly. So energy, power, and national security are very clearly tied together pretty tightly. The tech sector, on the other hand, was generally ignored at this time. Now, there were exceptions. There was the time where the U.S. government accused a group of Japanese companies of colluding to sell electronics here in the U.S. at below market prices, all in an effort to undermine the tech industry in the United States and to undermine American companies— And that was totally happening. And moreover, ultimately, the U.S. failed to really do anything about it. But tech companies largely fell outside the scope of this committee. However, tech has changed significantly over the past 40 years. Major tech companies are now global entities. The shift to cloud services means that data isn't just stored in one data center on domestic territory. You've got data centers around the world. And that's a necessary component if you want to provide a global service and, you know, not have terrible latency when people are far from those domestic data centers. You've also got hardware and software interacting with one another, exchanging information, creating new ways for data to power various services. But that also means that the data is passing through numerous hands. Data is powerful stuff. I mean, it's really the currency of the technological age. The more data you have at your disposal, the more influence you've got, and the more money you make, the more catastrophic an event you could cause, either by accident or on purpose. By the 2010s, we started seeing the aggressive startup company culture that dominates the tech world today, and founders would launch a company, typically around you know like an app of some sort, and then they would seek out investment the ideas that were really compelling would get a ton of money behind them. For a lot of tech company founders, the goal was never necessarily to build a working, profitable app as a a sustainable business, but rather to create an idea that is so interesting That some other more established entity, like an enormous company on the the scale of Google, would sweep in and then purchase the whole ding-ding-durn thing for, like, a ridiculous amount of money. Then, as a founder, you could either go buy an island somewhere, or better yet, you do the whole dance again, only with a new idea. But investment can come from places other than U.S.-based companies like Google. It can come from venture capital firms or interested companies that might have their roots in other nations. Some of those nations might not have the friendliest perspective regarding the United States. And that was starting to look like a problem. I'll explain a little bit more after we take this short break. Running a business is no cakewalk.
1: So,
0: there was a growing realization toward the end of the 2010s that, you know, maybe data's important. Well, I should say, there was a growing realization within the U.S. government. The tech world had long had a deep understanding about this. Google, Facebook, and other companies didn't become multi-billion dollar global corporations by chance. They did it by realizing how valuable data is including, but not limited to, the personal data of their user bases. You know, you and me. People and companies will pay for data, or for access to data, or for ways to leverage data. But governments tend to be a little more slow on the uptake, particularly when it comes to technology. It's not uncommon for us in the United States to see governments only address issues revolving around tech, after those issues have grown to become potential or actual threats. Even in an era of data breaches, security leaks, and predatory business practices, it takes a while for the government to come up with a response beyond pulling a tech leader into a special hearing in Congress, and then, you know, not really doing anything else about it. I mean, sometimes they might impose a fine on these companies, and sometimes that could be in the range of hundreds of millions of dollars, which don't get me wrong. That's a lot of money. But the crazy thing is these companies deal in the billions of dollars. And so a hundred million dollars, that's unimaginable to me. That's so much money. but it would just show up as a relatively minor blip on some of these companies' ledgers. Moreover, I would say that the guiding spirit of technological development in the internet age has been one of optimism, perhaps even to the point of naivete. When you read up on how the architects of the internet and the web viewed their work, you tend to see ideas like how information wants to be free, and that the ability to exchange ideas freely leads to better outcomes and better communication the ideals are admirable but because information has value and because that means you can use information to create an advantage either economically or strategically or in some other way it just hasn't really panned out to be a data utopia you probably you probably have noticed this yourself So, while the design of the web and the internet mostly orbited this general point of view that data should be able to move effortlessly across networks, that doesn't line up with how entities like governments tend to view information. To a government, information can be an asset. Something that could give the respective country a leg up on other countries. Governments typically are not in favor of giving up advantages. Certainly the U.S. government is not keen on that idea. So, when you start viewing data as another national asset, it becomes imperative that you figure out ways to protect that asset. You don't want it to flow freely. And there's one major component I haven't really talked about yet when it comes to this whole situation, and that's the specific role of China. Not just a foreign country in general, but China in particular. Over the past decade, Chinese companies have become far more active in the tech space, making significant investments in numerous tech companies, This ranges from social media platforms to game companies to communications companies and everything in between. And that has raised concerns in some other nations, particularly in the United States. A big reason for this is that China and the US frequently find themselves on unfriendly terms. It's not quite a full on Cold War status like the United States had with the good old USSR, but it's not buddy buddy. The U.S. and China depend heavily on one another economically, and that makes things particularly tricky. At times, one country will attempt to put leverage on the other through various trade restrictions or sanctions or levies or whatever. We've seen that quite a few times over the last couple of years, but there's a concern in the U.S. that if China gets much more influential, it will become the leading world power and possibly extend its influence beyond its own borders and beyond economic influence. China's government is very different from the United States. The country has a lot of state-backed companies, meaning the Chinese government will actively support certain companies and give them a huge boost in capability or limit any competition that they might face from foreign competitors. By the way, there's a whole discussion we could have about how, in the United States, companies can sometimes get similar benefits, but that's a topic for another show. And a huge issue for the United States is that the Chinese government is effectively dominated by the Chinese Communist Party. This party is involved, sometimes at very intrinsic levels, in pretty much every aspect of life in China, including business. The government requires companies operating in China to reserve a spot in their committees for representatives of the Communist Party— This pretty much fundamentally goes against the economic philosophy of the United States, which typically condemns the government getting involved in any sort of decision-making capacity for an individual company. Another big kicker is that back on June 27, 2017, the Chinese government passed a law which the world at large generally refers to as China's National Intelligence Law. The law created obligations for Chinese companies and citizens and to certain foreign individuals operating within China. As Murray Scott Tanner, writing for the website lawfareblog.com puts it, the law, quote, repeatedly obliges individuals, organizations, and institutions to assist public security and state security officials in carrying out a wide array of intelligence work, end quote. This blog, which I highly recommend, by the way, breaks this down into segments. It explains that the law includes language giving Chinese intelligence agents the authority to go so far as to not just demand cooperation from companies and citizens, but even go to the limits of uh, commandeering the communications equipment, transportation, buildings, and other facilities of individuals as well as organizations and government organs, Now, Tanner points out that the vague language of the act means that Chinese officials can take a fairly broad approach to interpreting and executing upon it, which was probably by design. An earlier draft of the law specifically mentioned enterprises and companies, but the government struck that language from the law before they passed it and made it more general with words like organizations, which leaves room for interpretation as to whether the government would assume authority to compel a company to cooperate with intelligence demands. Could this mean that a company operating in China would be obligated to hand over data to the Chinese government if intelligence agents demanded it? There are a lot of foreign companies that are operating in China. Google, Apple, Disney, AT&T, Belkin, Sony, all of these have branches in China, which makes sense. The Chinese population represents an enormous market, and expanding there is a no-brainer from a revenue standpoint. At some point, you're going to find it hard to continue to grow in a saturated market, so getting into a relatively new market is incredibly valuable. It's like discovering a new continent and going on a land grab. Moreover, what about companies that aren't in China, but end up being acquired by Chinese companies or investors? For example, the Chinese company Tencent has spent billions of dollars investing in numerous video game developer and publisher companies around the world. Tencent outright owns the company Riot Games, which produces the game League of Legends, Tencent has a 40% share of Epic Games, which makes Fortnite. And not too long ago, Epic Games launched the Epic Games Store, a competitor to Valve's Steam platform. Tencent also owns 5% of Ubisoft, a company that has recently been in the news for some... Pretty awful stuff. I may have to do a full episode on that in the future. Though, I should point out that Tencent's stake in Ubisoft came with certain conditions. Among them, that Tencent wouldn't be allowed to purchase more ownership in the company or more voting rights in the company. But since Tencent is a Chinese company, does that mean that the obligations Tencent has to the Chinese government extend to the properties that aren't actually in China? If an intelligence agent from the Chinese government went up to Tencent executives and said, hey, you have to hand over all the data you have on League of Legends players, would that mean that Riot Games would be forced to do that? That's a troubling question, and the U.S. government felt that the country needed a new approach to protect itself. The Committee for Foreign Investment in the United States didn't really have jurisdiction over tech company transactions. But this was a growing concern because of foreign investment in those companies and the world's growing reliance on tech companies in general. And so in 2018, the government passed the Foreign Risk Review Modernization Act, or FIRMA, F-I-R-R-M-A. This was, to use a video game term, a power-up for the committee, giving it more powers to investigate proposed tech company transactions and potentially intervene in them. To quote a summary of the act, quote, The Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act of 2018, FIRMA, expands the jurisdiction of the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States to address growing national security concerns over foreign exploitation of certain investment structures which traditionally have fallen outside of CFIUS jurisdiction. Additionally, Firma modernizes CFIUS's processes to better enable timely and effective reviews of covered transactions." End quote. And again, the term covered transactions refer to typically really big corporate moves. Like acquisitions and mergers. But Firma expanded that to some other categories, such as the quote, purchase, lease, or concession by or to a foreign person of real estate located in proximity to sensitive government facilities, end quote. So if you had a startup company, tech or otherwise, and it happened to be in an office campus that also included, say, a government office with sensitive files, Your business could potentially fall under this category, and any investment from a foreign individual or a company could come under its scrutiny, the idea being that maybe that investing party is really more interested in getting close to those sensitive files and doesn't really care about the company at all. It's more about opportunity. Now, this also included any transaction that would allow foreigners access to, quote, non-public technical information, end quote, other than what is available to, you know, any shareholder who holds stake in the business. It also expanded the parameters of the committee's powers to cover any change in a company's structure that would result in foreign control of a U.S. business. FIRMA boosted the amount of time the committee has to investigate a proposed company transaction. Before FIRMA, the committee had a deadline of 30 days, but now it's 45 days plus an option for a 15-day extension in, quote, extraordinary circumstances, end quote. Now, I'm not certain what merits qualification as an extraordinary circumstance. The act doesn't, really give any indication of what that means, and I suspect that circumstances can get really extraordinary pretty quickly due to a lack of clarity around that. Isn't the law fun? See, this is why I love covering tech. Tech typically either works or it doesn't work. If it works, you can get to the bottom of how and why it works. And if it doesn't work, you can look at it to see where the problem is, whether it's a faulty part or a faulty process, or maybe the whole technology is based on something fundamentally unsound from a scientific perspective. <coughs> Theranos. <coughs> but law? Man, that stuff gets all loosey goosey, and the specifics will only play out after many years and typically many lawsuits to refine it so that we have a better understanding of the law's scope and limitations. Now, when we come back, I'll talk a bit more about the process CFIUS follows when it reviews these transactions, and we'll explore the TikTok story a little bit more in detail. But first, let's take another quick break. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. I think it's pretty safe to say that the major reason the U.S. government passed FIRMA was China's growing involvement in the U.S. economy, and the tech sector in particular. Not that the laws only cover Chinese involvement, but I'm pretty certain that was the impetus to pass these laws. So, what's the actual process for the committee to get involved? Well, usually the parties that are interested in having one of these covered transactions will actually bring the case to CFIUS for review. The purpose of this is to identify any potential hurdles and address any concerns so that the transaction can go through. Otherwise, the parties might get deeply involved in a process that Ultimately, the U.S. government stops somewhere down the line or reverses, and that can mean billions of dollars lost in the process. So rather than risk failure down the road, these companies will voluntarily bring their proposed transactions to the committee for consideration. And best case scenario, the committee says, we have no response to this. It's fine and everything can go through. But the committee has 45 days, without that 15-day extension, that is, to review the parameters of the deal. And the committee looks at a really long list of potential issues, including how much influence, if any, the foreign entity will have over the business operations and assets of the U.S.-based company. In some cases, like an acquisition or merger, this could be pretty clear, and the committee could come to a decision fairly quickly. But in other cases, such as when Tencent took that 5% stake in Ubisoft, it could be a little more fuzzy. The committee can still intervene if the investing entity isn't taking full control of the U.S. company. If the committee finds that the investor would have significant influence on a company or access to its assets, that could be enough for the committee to step in and start making demands. So if the committee chooses to act, it can do so in one of many ways. Now, in the most extreme cases, the committee might simply prevent this transaction entirely, saying, we're not going to allow it. But in other cases, the committee could propose requirements that both parties have to agree to before a transaction can take place. That can include things like making certain the foreign entity doesn't have decision-making authority on the company or access to the company's assets, particularly its data. And in those cases, the arrangement would be essentially purely financial. The foreign entity would benefit from the transaction economically, but not be able to actually control stuff. In very rare cases, the committee can just send decisions all the way up to the president for consideration. And that gives the president the potential to wield significant power when it comes to corporate transactions, something that makes some groups in the United States fairly uneasy. For example, in 2018, President Trump blocked a proposed acquisition in which a company called Broadcom would purchase the semiconductor company Qualcomm for $117 billion. Now, this particular story gets confusing because if you look up Broadcom, you'll see it is apparently an American company. And you look up Qualcomm, and that's an American company too. So If they're both domestic companies, why did CFIUS get involved? That's all about foreign investment. Well, the whole story is complicated, but operations for Broadcom had moved to Singapore until 2017, and that's when the company legally relocated the home address from Singapore to the U.S. Ironically, they did this specifically, or at least largely, to avoid CFIUS issues, because they would become a domestic company. However, ownership of the company is still rooted in Asia. So while the company has a U.S. address, that apparently was not enough to satisfy CFIUS or Trump, and so the proposed acquisition got the axe. The committee can also force companies to reverse transactions well after they've already happened. CFIUS ordered Chinese investors to divest from patients like me, which was a healthcare startup. The investors had already poured money into this startup venture. Uh, and the same thing would happen with Grindr, a dating app for the LGBTQ community. Chinese investors poured money into that too. So both startups deal with a lot of very sensitive information, you know, healthcare information, location, data, preferences, all this kind of stuff that is really important to individuals and could pose as a security threat in general. And the committee deemed that this posed as a potential threat not just to personal security, but national security. And you might wonder, how is that even possible? Well, if you're someone who works for the government and you're using one of these apps and your location is being tracked through that app, that could potentially be a threat to national security. So That was sort of the the logistics behind it, the reasoning behind it. And this brings us up to TikTok. Now, if you listened to my previous episode about TikTok, you know that one of the foundational components was an older service called Musical.ly, L-Y, that is. Musical.ly. Launched in China and the United States at around the same time, but while it got a fairly enthusiastic reception in the U.S., it was largely ignored in China, and that convinced the team of Musical Lee to focus on the U.S. market, and it largely became essentially a U.S. company. ByteDance, another Chinese company, had a competing service that was similar to Musical Lee, and that one was very strong in the Chinese market. So ByteDance then acquired Musical Lee in 2017 for an undisclosed amount of money, but I'm sure it was a lot of it. TikTok would grow out of this acquisition. The competing service that ByteDance operates is actually still active in China, Whereas TikTok is really not available in China, oddly enough, though perhaps maybe it's not that odd, because access to TikTok would mean that Chinese citizens would get access to information that isn't state-approved. That's not really the way that China operates in general. But TikTok started as a Chinese company, no matter how you trace its origins, whether it's to ByteDance or to Musical Li. And the popularity of the app has grown significantly over the last couple of years, becoming a true phenomenon, particularly among young people. Now, the fact that, like all social networks, TikTok relies on user data to support its revenue model, which, again, is is centered around advertising, well, that makes it a concern for the U.S. government. Military bases ban personnel from downloading the app. Uh, It's not supposed to go on any government-operated or owned phones. And the concern is that the app could siphon away critical information and send it on, ultimately, to a Chinese company. TikTok stated that all U.S. data is actually stored in the U.S. itself. It does have a backup in Singapore, but according to TikTok, the U.S.-based operations anyway, none of this data is subject to the Chinese intelligence laws. But that hasn't really quelled the criticism or concern about TikTok Now the president has signed an executive order barring transactions with ByteDance, essentially telling U.S. companies that they can't do any business with ByteDance, and by extension TikTok, since TikTok is owned by ByteDance. So that's why there's now pressure to remove TikTok from app stores like Apple or Google. And there's this discussion about the committee stepping in to force ByteDance to divest itself of TikTok, If the service is to operate in the United States, thus the possibility of Microsoft coming in to purchase TikTok from ByteDance. Now, there's still a lot of confusion around this situation. If Microsoft were to only purchase TikTok servers that were operating in the United States, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, these are all countries that are closely aligned with one another on matters of intelligence, How would that affect the overall service? Because TikTok operates around the world and servers are located in different countries. So would this acquisition split TikTok into two separate apps, one owned by Microsoft and one that's not? Would those two apps interoperate at all? It seems unlikely because the whole stated reason for going after TikTok in the first place is because the app could potentially be sending personal data about U.S. citizens to a foreign country's government. So why would we allow it to interoperate with another service that could still be doing that? Now, there have been a few other reports saying that Microsoft's considering a purchase of the global operations of TikTok, a report that Microsoft has disputed. The value of the deal will fluctuate, depending upon which version of the deal you're looking at. Uh, But generally speaking, the reports I've seen have valued it at between 10 and $30 billion. It boggles my mind. But Microsoft, a company that has not traditionally performed terribly well with younger customers, apart from maybe the Xbox division, I suppose may want to go after TikTok to help secure its future with younger customers. Microsoft says, well, here's the way we get them. We buy something they really like already. We have to view this not just as an issue of national security, however, and we have to take into account the broader situation of global politics and trade agreements. One could look at the success of TikTok and see it as a point of power for a Chinese company, and by extension, the Chinese government. So resting control of that app, even if it's just part of an app from China, would end up being a political loss for China and a political win for Trump. So complicating matters is that TikTok users, most of them younger, have become extremely active over the last several months during the global response to the COVID pandemic. In other words, what else is there to do? You might as well make a whole bunch of videos. But some of that activity is political in nature. People have been using TikTok to kind of organize politically. And much of this action has been critical of the U.S. president and the U.S. government's handling of the COVID-19 crisis. I totally get it. Anyway, it's hard to get away from the feeling that some of the U.S. government's response to TikTok might be backlash against a user base that has been outspoken about perceived failures in the U.S. government, whether it's from COVID or the Black Lives Matter movement or many other social issues. So some say that maybe this is a move to try and quiet a voice that has been troublesome for the U.S. government. Then we have the competing services. That have started to spring up that are attempting to take advantage of this whole situation and to try and get some of the success that TikTok has enjoyed. The most famous of these, I think, is Facebook introducing the feature called Reels, R E E L S, on Instagram. And I don't think there's any way you could argue it wasn't inspired by TikTok. In fact, some people go so far as to say it's essentially a copy of TikTok. So, What options are open right now? Where are we going to go next? Well, TikTok could remain under ByteDance's ownership, and it could even shift all operations back over to China or to other countries. And it would be very hard for the United States to block Americans from using an app. I mean, apps tend to just be apps, right? They, They aren't really you know, tied to a specific location, generally speaking. Now, presumably, the U.S. government could order Internet service providers to block access to the app to essentially say, don't allow packets to go from those servers to anyone in the United States. But as I'm recording this, we don't even know if Google and Apple will actually remove TikTok from their online stores. And it seems likely that internet service providers would resist blocking off access to a specific service because it sets a dangerous precedent. It would mean the U.S. would, ironically, operate more like China does. China has the Great Firewall, a barrier that effectively blocks most internet content from getting to Chinese citizens. Now, as for what I think about all of this, um, well, I mean, honestly, I'm conflicted. On the one hand, I do have concern about how private data can be gathered and then weaponized, but that concern stretches beyond China. I'm concerned with what Facebook does with our data, for example, or Twitter, or really any online platform we rely upon heavily. TikTok sticks out because of the possible connections to a foreign government that has a rather acrimonious relationship with the U.S. government, China also has a terrible record with human rights violations. Though, let's be fair, the United States is no stranger to this either. So I think the TikTok case is kind of emotionally charged. However, I don't think we should consider it an outlier. Instead, we should really hold all online services up to scrutiny and get a better understanding of how are these services using the information we provide to them. That includes services that might share information with our own government, not just foreign governments. Data really is power, and we have to be careful to whom we entrust that power. For the last couple of decades, we haven't been careful at all. We have been freely giving away our location, our personal information, and giving links to other people in our lives so There are entities out there that are gathering information about people who don't even use the services because they're just kind of lumped in with the folks who are using them. So to me, that says we need to be careful across the board. TikTok is one example, but not the only one. Do I think it's a good idea to remove TikTok from Chinese hands? Well, I mean, I guess that really depends on where it goes to and how the new owner will handle the service and whether the outcome is actually better for users or not. I know that TikTok is incredibly popular and that users are probably not just going to jump from TikTok To a competing service like Reels, despite what Facebook would really like to see, I think it's far more likely we would see users migrate to an entirely new service rather than one that tries to replicate what TikTok was already doing. And I think we need to have some important conversations about stuff like what actually constitutes a threat to national security? What does that really mean? what what is the real fear here and what actions actually help improve things how do how do we improve national security rather than just kind of shift stuff around i'm not entirely certain we're on the right track as it stands right now but that's a conversation that is huge and honestly requires people far more steeped in in uh policy than i am i only know that if we just reduce this to We don't want that data going to China. We risk missing an important component that has just as strong a uh, role in our lives as national security. And that, I think, would be a huge mistake. I'm curious what you guys think and whether or not you have suggestions for future topics of tech stuff. Actually, if you don't have suggestions for future topics of tech stuff, you don't have to tell me that. That's fine. But if you do have suggestions reach out to me. The Twitter address you should use to let me know what's going on is techstuffhsw. And I'll talk to you again really soon. TechStuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.